Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing a song for the dreaming of the world. Voices for Peace 2008 was a rich assortment of activities held on September 14th in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, a safe place to raise awareness about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, their effects, and solutions for ending these wars. There were speakers, booths, workshops, music, crafts, food, and more. There was a gigantic peace dove fluttering around the park, supported by several people. The event took place the same weekend as an air show, so you'll hear the droning of jets overhead often during the presentations. But as one participant announced, the voices for peace will not be silenced by the thunder of war machines. It was a powerful assembly of folks with information, personal experience, with a deep zeal to strive toward peace. We'll be listening in on the main stage today the first hour or so. Actually, the first presentation was a Native American drumming opening, and we closed the day with a drum circle as well. We'll start this session for the spoken opening circle of prayer, then go to a presentation by Steve Wagner of Military Families Speak Out, followed by presentations by two folks from the Wheels of Justice campaign, notably by Paul Melling, a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War. Now, to the Labyrinth at Phoenix Park, Eau Claire, for the start of the spoken part of our program, Voices for Peace 2008. Welcome, everyone, to Voices for Peace 2008. Loud cheer. Really, thank you very much for coming out today. It's really important to speak and listen, to give peace a voice, and you're doing that by being here today, so thank you very much. We wanted to start out with a circle of prayer. We'll start with David Huber from Plymouth UCC. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for inviting me to be here and, uh, and to help start us off uh, with the, the visions of peace. This is a wonderful and a good thing. Uh, as Mark said, I'm David Huber. I'm a pastor at Plymouth United Church of Christ. Uh, certainly in our my church tradition, peace has been a big thing for a long time, uh, a big uh, important mission and ministry of the church. So let's have a few things to say to get us started. Jesus, in his preaching, said once, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. Which is interesting. He didn't say wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be. But wherever your treasure is, your heart will be. We become, in a sense, what we spend. 
and I imagine we spent a lot on that. Our hearts follow our spending, or wherever, yeah, wherever we put our money, our hearts will follow. Or wherever we put our time, our hearts will follow. We become what we spend, and so also with peace. If we want peace, then live peacefully. Live peacefully in the now. If we want peace, then offer peace to our neighbors. Reorient ourselves to live in an economy of peace using the currency of compassion and reconciliation and forgiveness, which are far more powerful than dollars and bullets and engines of destruction. But the economy of peace can be an expensive economy, not in dollars, but in self. requires the high cost of vulnerability and of listening and of facing the truth that you, that you might be wrong, that you might have done wrong. It requires giving up the myth of scarcity and embracing the truth of abundance. It requires the cost of no longer commodifying people. It requires saying no to Pharaoh's demand to keep making bricks. And to say no, those bricks have no value and they serve only you. It requires disengaging from our dominant script of technological, therapeutic, military consumerism, as Walt Brueggemann calls it into a script of abundant generosity that no longer dehumanizes the other and no longer shames and no longer claims the self as inherently superior or inherently more valuable. It might require giving up the things you want so that everyone can have what they need. In an economy of peace, all people and all communities have equal value, not based on what they can produce, but by the very fact that they exist that they are. And so I'm glad to see all of you here at a pro-peace gathering, which I think is a lot more difficult and a lot more helpful than just being anti-war. Being anti is easy. Being for something takes action and stepping out and doing something. To seek peace is to disengage from all that is not peaceful. And peace is not weakness. And peace is not easy. Peace is a sign of strength, of inner strength of all involved in making that peace happen and releasing all the ego and mimetic desire and prejudice and learned hatred and a willingness to swim in the ambiguity of no easy answers and no easy solutions, but to keep asking questions and to stay in dialogue. So I'm glad that you are all here to be for peace, not just anti-war, but for peace And I pray that you find this afternoon to be a blessing, and I pray that in your lives you are blessed to continue to live for peace, to strive for peace, and to be peaceful in all that you do. Thank you. Thank you for being here. My name is Dennis Eikenberry, and I'm glad you're here, all of you. We still have another week where there is more hours of sunlight than darkness. And tomorrow is a full moon, and so we've got plenty of light. And with our eyes wide open, and our hearts wide open, and a lot of light, I'm inviting you to have a dream that I've had for quite a while. My dream is an unbroken human family on all of the earth. 
Another part of my dream is that there be abundance for all people on earth. And I invite you to have that dream. If peace is our destination, then the journey begins in our heart. So in addition to our eyes wide open, our hearts are open. And seeing human dignity in all human beings. And we do that when we no longer feel the need to judge other people. Thank you. I can't help but remember that our closing song at the liturgy today was Let There Be Peace on Earth and Let It Begin with Me. Yeah. My name is Father John Schultz. I am the pastor at St. James Catholic Church in Eau Claire's West Side. And we're clearly here for Voices for Peace 2008, a safe environment. You read all this. But with this in mind, the awareness that we are here to learn, to listen, to share, as you said, to dialogue. And there are ethical considerations and moral considerations and religious considerations and political considerations and economic considerations and human considerations and the list can go on and on and on. There are people here of many different religious backgrounds. There's Lutherans, there's Catholics, United Church of Christ, Native American, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, people who say, I don't have any belief in God at all, and whoever I'm leaving out. Many different backgrounds. A prayer today, just to build on what Dave and Dennis have said, for openness, to be able to really be open to truth, to be open to the other person, to the heart of that person, whoever that person is, whatever that person stands for, a person created by God. And to listen, very interesting, the word listen in this derivation really comes from the word obey in Latin. They are very much connected. But to really listen to the big picture, to really listen to that other individual who's talking, talking with words or talking with facial expressions or talking with body language or talking however they're talking. And rather than, what am I going to say next? To really listen to the heart of that person, to try to walk in that person's shoes, that together we might, as the word was used before, to dialogue and be together. I'm going to conclude with the prayer of St. Francis. No, I'm not going to sing it. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is injury, your pardon, Lord. Where there is doubt, true faith in you. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is despair in life, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, only light. Where there is sadness, ever joy. 
Well, Master, grant that I may never seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love with all my soul. Make me a channel of your peace. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned and giving of ourselves that we receive and in dying that we're born to eternal life. Amen. Not that we're done, we're just beginning. But amen, alleluia, God bless. Thank you for being here. Welcome. Thanks for coming, fellow peacekeepers. I'm really happy to see everybody here. I just want to take a minute and uh, invite you to stop over at the pavilion, write a letter to the Iraqis. There's a, a peace table that you can do that. It's a really cool thing. Also, we've got lots of great information. And again, thanks for coming out. Right now, I want to take a moment and introduce Steve Wagner with Military Family Speak Out. I must be the tallest one here so far. Okay. Thanks, Phil. A few months ago, I received a phone call from a stranger. He asked me if I'd speak here today for this event. And I thought about it for about a minute, and I said, yeah. Well, that stranger was Phil. I'm proud to say that I started a new friendship on that day. Phil is one of the founding members of the Voices for Peace Institute, I didn't really have to think about this very long because Phil had awakened me again. He had awakened me to some of my activism that I've taken part of in the past. And I decided that, yes, I would be happy to come here and represent both the Voices for Peace and Military Families Speak Out, a couple of the organizations that I belong to. The organizers of this event today, we are a grassroots organization, nonpartisan, educational, with research dedicated towards peace. I would like to share with you the, our mission. The Voices for Peace Institute mission is to raise awareness in our community and beyond of the causes of war, the effects of war, and ways to promote peace. The Voices for Peace Institute is committed to promoting peace in collaboration with other organizations and individuals. Today, we would like for all of you attending to listen, to learn, and to share. Thank you for coming. Thank you for all who came to participate. Thank you to the vendors and the exhibitors. It is our hope that today's event is viewed as a success by this community so that we can continue. Now, I'd like to speak on behalf of Military Families Speak Out. Military Families Speak Out is an organization of people who are opposed to the war in Iraq, who have relatives or loved ones who are currently in the military, preparing to go to Iraq, either come back from Iraq, but mostly family members and loved ones, those that actually are on the front lines. I was the 53rd member to join, and I just looked it up yesterday. We currently have 4,100 families that are active supporters of Military Families Speak Out. 
I joined MFSO, that's just to save some time here, I'm going to go by the acronym, okay? I joined MFSO because I had a personal stake in this war. My oldest son, Nick, had joined the Army in January of 2001. It was about the same time when Mr. Bush was selected by our Supreme Court to lead our country. When Nick came to tell me that he was thinking of joining the Army, I thought it was a good plan. I believed that service to our country was a noble thing, and it was proper for Nick to choose that. I often remember that night when I met him for supper over here downtown in, at Hooligans when he told me about that. And I remember when I was on my way home, I was thinking, yep, this is good. My son is off to provide service to this country. In the summer of 2002, as our current leadership began its march to this war that we are still in, I began to question exactly what was going on. I realized that this administration had full intentions of using our armed forces for something that was wrong. As the rhetoric became stronger, I began to question nearly all the components of what was being called the Bush Doctrine. Our preemptive strategy. Why were we looking towards the invasion of Iraq? I didn't understand. It didn't make sense to me. I often refer to this time in my life as my first awakening. I realized that I could no longer sit back and simply watch my country go down this foolish path. I became obsessed with trying to become informed about the goals and objectives of our leadership. The more I learned, the more I realized that I had to speak up. I had to say, no, not in my name. Or as one politician put it so eloquently a couple of weeks ago over in Denver, enough! And so, in my search for knowledge, I discovered MFSO. As people with family members and loved ones in the military, we know that it is our loved ones who are, or have been, or will be on the battlefront. It is our loved ones who are at risk, who have been injured, or who have died as a result of this war. It is our loved ones who are returning frightened from their experiences, who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. It is our loved ones who are paying the ultimate price for this unjust and illegal war. Since its inception, MFSO has stood for two major principles. First, support our troops and bring our troops home now. And secondly, take care of them when they come home. One of the most tangible things I feel I can do is what I'm doing today. Speaking for those who are involved in this war that have no voice. The thousands of soldiers who are fighting this war that see how futile this occupation is. As soldiers, they risk jail or a dishonorable discharge 
if they speak truth to power. My risk in speaking out is only to be scoffed at by shallow and uninformed, self-appointed patriots who feel their country can do no wrong. I believe that war is one of the most barbaric things we as humans do. I do not have a first-hand experience with war, but I've talked with many who have. The stories I've heard often make me cringe. When speaking to others about this war in Iraq, it is no exception. In September of 2005, just a few weeks after our government's failures with the Katrina disaster, my wife and I marched with over 100,000 people to the White House. We marched with other MFSO members and Veterans for Peace and Iraqi Veterans Against the War. Recently, I attended the National Conference for the Veterans for Peace. At this conference, I heard a story of this war that made me shudder. A young woman veteran and member of the IVAW, Margaret Stevens, told this story. It is not a pleasant story, but I feel it is a story that must be told again and again. And that's why I've chosen to tell this story today. All of us must begin to understand what war does to us as humans so we realize that war must be our last option, not our first. This story is about Private First Class Lavina Johnson. It is a story that may make you angry, and it may make you shudder. Lavina was stationed in Balad, Iraq a city of 100,000 people about 100 kilometers north of Baghdad, located in the infamous Sunni Triangle. On July 19, 2005, just eight weeks after she arrived, and eight days before her 20th birthday, she died. The officials of the Army ruled that Levina's death was due to a self-inflicted gunshot from her own M16 rifle. Lavina's father, Dr. John Johnson, found it hard to accept that his daughter had committed suicide. From the day their daughter's body was returned to them, the parents had grave suspicions about the Army's investigation. In charge of communications facility, Lavina was able to call home every day. In those calls, she gave no indications of emotional problems or being upset. In a letter to her parents, Lavina's commanding officer, Captain David Woods, wrote, Lavina was clearly happy and seemed in very good health, both physically and emotionally. After seeing his daughter's body at the funeral home, Dr. Johnson knew something was wrong. He requested for the official documents concerning the investigation into her death. The Army refused Dr. Johnson's request. Finally, after two years and filing a Freedom of Information Act request, he received those documents and photos concerning this investigation. Here's what those photos and documents showed. The photographs revealed that Lavina, a small woman, barely five foot tall, 
and weighing less than 100 pounds, had been struck in the face with a blunt instrument, perhaps a weapon stock. Her nose was broken and her teeth were knocked backwards. One elbow was distended. The back of her clothes had debris on them, indicating she had been dragged from one location to another. The photographs of her disrobed body showed bruises, scratch marks, teeth imprints on the upper part of her body. The right side of her back, as well as her right hand, had been burned, apparently from flammable liquid, poured on her, and then lighted. Lit. My wife wants me to correct that word, and I didn't. The photographs of her genital area revealed massive bruisings and lacerations. A corrosive liquid had been poured into her genital area, probably to destroy DNA evidence of a sexual assault. Despite the bruises, scratches, teeth imprints, and burns on her body, Lavina was found completely dressed in a burning tent. There was a small blood trail from the outside of a contractor's tent to the inside of the tent she was laid in. She apparently had been dressed after the attack, and her attacker placed her body into the tent and set the tent on fire. This is horrendous. After hearing this story that evening, the voices for peace will drown out those voices for war. After hearing that story that evening, there were so many unanswered questions. Why did the Army classify this death as a suicide? Who was the Army covering up for? Why wasn't this story on the front page of the Eau Claire Leader Telegram? Why did I only hear this story just two weeks ago? And perhaps, perhaps the most important question, why aren't these questions being answered? Since becoming involved in MFSO, I've heard way too many stories like Levita Johnson's. The Department of Defense statistics are alarming. One in three women who join the U.S. military will be sexually assaulted or raped by men in the military. The warnings to women should begin above the doors at our military recruiting centers, as that is where some of these assaults occur. The war and our civilian leadership of our military have weakened our country. Many of our soldiers are on their third, fourth, fifth tours to this war. A war that we were all told was going to be a cakewalk. It seems every week I hear yet another story of how we have let those sacrificing the most down. The suicide rate for our returning soldiers is the highest it's ever been. A recent Pentagon report states that each day, five American soldiers attempt to kill themselves. This number does not include those soldiers that are no longer in the military. No one knows what the actual numbers are when you consider all of the soldiers who've been deployed to Iraq. Our VA hospitals are understaffed 
for the mounting needs for the mental health professionals to help our soldiers. Often veterans go to these facilities for help, only told to come back in six weeks. That's when they can get their first appointment. We should not be sitting on our hands and expecting things to get better soon. We need to demand that our government follow through with helping those who have sacrificed. Department of Defense reports state that over 30,000 soldiers have been wounded in action. The Department of Veterans Affairs states that over 120,000 veterans who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan and no longer in the military have been diagnosed with mental health problems. Over half of these men and women, that's 60,000 people, have been diagnosed as suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Many of these soldiers come home with severe injuries that they and their loved ones must endure for the rest of their lives. As of this morning, 4,154 American soldiers have died in Iraq. When is it we as Americans are going to stand up and say, Enough! I've chosen a path of being an activist in our community, our country, in our world, to try and tell people how wrong this war is, to try and convince people through my actions that we do not have to accept the lies that we've been told. I believe we can stop this war. Won't you please join me? Become involved. Become informed. Speak out. Don't let the drums of war drowned out the voices for peace and reason. Join me and hundreds of people right here in the Chippewa Valley to demand from our leaders that they must support our troops by bringing them home, bring them home now, and take care of them when they get back. Thank you very much. That was Steve Wagoner, a member of Military Families Speak Out. That's www.mfso.org. I'm Mark Helpsmeet of Northern Spirit Radio, and this program is Spirit in Action. You can always listen to our programs from our online archives at northernspiritradio.org, and please drop us a comment while you're there. We'd love the chance to get to know you and hear what speaks to your condition and what you'd like to hear more of. Again, that's northernspiritradio.org, and you can subscribe to our programs via iTunes. The Spirit was strong at the event you're listening to, Voices for Peace 2008, held on September 14th. This was an interfaith event with a variety of Christians. There were Buddhists, Muslims, Jews, Quakers, Native Americans, and there were non-religious folk too. No one was shut out, and many were sharing directly from their powerful centers, a place that is the intersection of personal experience and insight and a vision of good for all of the wider community. There were several different keynote speakers. You just heard the first, Steve Wagner, and we'll go now to two representatives of the Wheels of Justice campaign, including Paul Melling, who served in the U.S. military in Iraq, but is now a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War, speaking of his personal experience and journey. Back to Phoenix Park, Eau Claire for the Wheels of Justice campaign. 
Hello, everyone. How are you doing out there? My name is Joshua. I'm from the uh, Wheels of Justice bus. As you can see it over there, that's our lovely bus. We travel around the country giving uh, eyewitness testimony to the occupations in Iraq and then in Palestine. So uh, I'll play a quick song for you here, and then I'm going to let you know a little bit about the bus, its history, and then we'll get into the presentation. We have two speakers who have been on the ground in both Iraq and Palestine and are going to share their stories with you. This is our first stop on the tour, except for yesterday we went to Chippewa Falls for a vigil there. And we had a great time. The people there treated us very well. And one thing we were discussing there is kind of ironic how we have the Blue Angels here flying over us today, uh, showing us our wonderful U.S. military might and precision. And then uh, we thought we were kind of saying it, it might be a good thing if we're so confident in our smart bombs and we're so confident in our military prowess that maybe we could have a live fire demonstration right here in Eau Claire. And I thought people might be, you know, excited to see how great our bombs are and how precise they are. And... uh we could maybe pick out like a, an older part of town that's not used very much or something like that and just see quite how accurate they really are. You know, I mean, it's really quite sad, the madness and the lunacy, what we would subject other people to, but we wouldn't subject ourselves to. So with that, I'll play a song for you, and then we'll get started with the presentation. Well, it's times like now when silence is a betrayal And you have to close your eyes to pretend that you don't see That our morality and our position is so frail And we are out of touch, out of touch with reality Do you think that our crusade has solved anything, anything? Do you think that conquest makes people free? When in reality our sisters and brothers are suffering desperately, imagine for one second if that were you or me. It's times like now that require a fierce urgency If we are to change the destructive curse of the past We must speak out now with the courage to act boldly We must stand up strong and stand up fast Does our spirituality mean anything, anything If we stand by and close our eyes When in reality our sisters and brothers are suffering silently Can we blame them when they take up arms it's a betrayal of our humanity And it's a betrayal of our spirituality And it's a betrayal 
of our morality It's a betrayal Don't sleep now Speak out now 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 All right, thank you. So a little bit of a uh, summary about the bus and its history, and then we'll move right into our speakers. Voices in the Wilderness and the uh, Middle Eastern Children's Alliance started the Wheels of Justice. And before it was named that, it, it was uh, went on a tour called the Remembering Omron Tour. And Voices in the Wilderness and the Middle East Children's Alliance thought it was necessary to raise awareness to the great amount of suffering of the Iraqi people during the sanctions period. And the tour went to commemorate a young shepherd boy named Omron, who was killed from a bombing in the no-fly zone before the current war. So there was a lot going on there. In fact, the United Nations estimated that over 500,000 children died during the sanctions period as a direct result of those sanctions and bombings in the no-fly zone. So initially, that's how the tour was kicked off, was commemorating the loss of Omron's life. And then later, the uh, group went back and, and shared the story with his family about how they were raising awareness. And it was a very powerful tour, and it kind of sustained, and it kind of grew and then for about two years afterwards, they toured around the United States, visiting homes, schools, and places of worship to educate people on the sanctions. And then around September 11th, after that happened, basically the idea was to revamp the tour because they were seeing the increasing vilification of Muslims and Arabs and then kind of the buildup to the Iraq War. So they went on tour once again trying to uh, put a stop to the Iraq War before it even happened, which, as you know, is unsuccessful. As that was going on, they decided to combine the issues of Iraq and Palestine, just trying to look at the U.S. involvement in both situations. You know, the U.S. Congress is estimating that we're spending about $10 billion a month on the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. And we're also spending about $5 billion a year that we give to Israel, which a lot of that is used for the occupation of Palestine. Just trying to look at those two issues and our taxpayer money and our country's involvement in uh, both of those places. So... Connecting those issues for the tour is a, a central role in what we do. And then also kind of the irony that, you know, as bad as Saddam Hussein he was, a guy he was, he was in violation of seven UN resolutions, whereas Israel has been like in violation of like 60. So there's kind of a lot of contradictions there. You know, why are we invading one place and not another if that really is the answer? So on the current tour, the Wheels of Justice tour, um, the bus has been to over 200 middle schools and high schools and over 1,200 colleges and universities. We come to a lot of events and forums like this. We go to vigils and anywhere we can take a chance to do outreach. And a another thing is we, we don't come to say that we're experts on the situation. We just come as people like you who are trying to offer some nonviolent solutions. Uh, these situations are all very complicated. And um, the speakers come to give their personal testimony of what they saw there. And so our main goals are to give humanized pictures of Iraqis and Palestinians. You know, I, I worked with refugees from Afghanistan for quite a while, and it's very, very hard once you meet people face-to-face -to, -face to kind of demonize them, to put them off in the uh, categories of the other. That's one of the main things we try to do on the tour. 
Um, we also want to give an understanding of the role of U.S. policies in these wars and occupations. And then to give our audiences resources for working towards justice and nonviolent methods to challenge our current policies and practices. So now let me introduce to you our uh, first speaker. We have Paul Melling. He's with Iraq Veterans Against the War. He's 27 years old, and in September of 2002, he enlisted in the Army and started training as a field artillery cannon crew member. From February 2003 to January 2004, he was deployed to a small forward operating base outside of Kirkuk, Iraq. He was honorably discharged from the Army in June of 2006, and he has been a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War ever since. And he was most recently a participant in Witness Against War, which was a 450-mile walk from Chicago to St. Paul. And I was on that walk, too, and I got to know Paul very well. We traveled from Chicago to St. Paul doing community forums, trying to raise awareness about the continued occupations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that was put on by Voices for Creative Nonviolence, which, which is the same as Voices in the Wilderness. Without further ado, let's hear from our first speaker, Paul Melling. Hello. As I said, I'm Paul Melling. I'm originally from Melrose, Minnesota, so it's not too far from here. We are talking about occupation. That's kind of the Iraq and Palestine. So I'd like to read something from a little something I found. I think it's important in this country to, to relate it. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is, at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with the circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. That's from the Declaration of Independence. You know, we try to say that this is a country of freedom and what we're built on, but we're doing the exact same thing that happened to us so many years ago. I was wondering about these jets, how many tax dollars in just jet fuel they're burning up. I did join the Army September of 2002. I dropped out of college, thought it was the right thing to do. I bought into all of the propaganda. You know, they hate us because we're free, that whole thing. So I joined, uh, enlisted, took my oath, went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma for basic training. In January of 2003, I went to Hawaii to hang out for about a year to train up. And then after the invasion of Iraq... Uh, we started to realize that we were going to get deployed. January of 2004, uh, I was deployed to Iraq, and we went and, uh, to a, a small town called Hawija, just west of Kirkuk. It was originally a stronghold of Saddam's Republican Guard. When the United States came in and completely disbanded the army, there were a whole bunch of Iraqi young guys that no longer had jobs. So um, they didn't like us very much there. I was an artilleryman, that's what I was trained for. That was my primary mission there. Just a few of the things that we did on that end. We participated in harassment and interdiction fire, which doesn't sound very nice. So the United States military and its wisdom changed the name to terrain denial fire. They did that a couple times, changed the names of things just to make them sound nice. But with the harassment and interdiction fire, we would just kind of shell whatever areas the bad guys might be using. So whether it's uh, people's fields or mountainsides or whatever, you know, any opportunity to try to uh, show a force, to, you know, show our superiority. 
It wasn't a few rounds. My commander was very proud in stating that we shot more artillery rounds than any other artillery battery in Operation Iraqi Freedom. It was thousands and thousands of rounds. And in not a very big area. And it was every night sustained near towns, keeping people up. These people don't have power. We did a lot of counterfire. The standard operating procedure on that changed. We, um, we would take a lot of mortar and rocket fire and that whole... But when we would go to shoot back, sometimes we wouldn't shoot back to try to be peaceful. I guess they tried that for a little while. But they changed it to where for every one round that was shot at us, we would shoot ten back. And it got to be to where we were shooting so many rounds, we had to have extra artillery rounds airlifted into our base so that we could keep this up. And it was just continuous, just pounding areas with artillery. Um, and we were supposed to be there to free the people. And all we did was blow up their land. Uh, we fired on suspected insurgents. Uh, I know at least one time my gun... There was a mission to fire on a suspected insurgent stronghold or a house, but I don't know if there were any insurgents there. Nobody really knows, but when our four observers went out to check out afterwards, we found that we had blown up a house full of a family, women and children, all innocent, um, and this happened on a, on a regular basis. There's no regard for the innocent civilians. Uh, I really felt like we're there to stop terrorists, but when we start killing innocent people, we really just kind of became the terrorists. I worked in the chow hall quite often, um, just because I was about the lowest ranking person there, so I got the crap jobs. But at the end of the day, we'd have all this extra food, and instead of bringing it to the local population, we would load it all in a truck and bring it to a giant pit and burn it. Every day this happened. No one ever gave us a reason why. Several of us asked the chain of command, why can't we just dump it on the side of the road and let the, you know, let the kids pick it up? But that was bad because we were discouraged from handing out food because it would attract, it would attract the children to our convoy. And I guess it's good because you don't want to run over the children, but handing out food is... I think it's kind of necessary to win the hearts and minds. And the hearts and minds thing is terms that is used quite often, but um, from the day I got to Kuwait, I never once had heard that. The only time they ever talked about hearts and minds was when they would go out and hand you a wad of cash and say, well, you got to spend money, win the hearts and minds. So I guess we're just buying them off. The only uh, one other time we heard the term hearts and minds was in our training when we would during the, I consider it the dehumanization process, they would train us in on who the Iraqis are and how basically they were less than human. Two in the heart, one in the mind was the term that was often used, referring to using our M16, two in the heart, one in the mind. Um, this happened, it was on a regular basis, and from the day we got into Kuwait, all Iraqis were haji, which from what I've come to learn, is a very honorable term in, the, in their part of the world, but we've taken it and used it against them to be, so they're less than human. But I guess I did join the military, so we took the oath, and at the time I was very much in favor. You know, we gotta, we got to fight the good fight and kill the bad guys and try to get our message across, you know, hopefully have peace in the end, but I realize that that's not at all what we're doing. The invasion, of, invasion and occupation of Iraq now is not doing anyone any good. After spending a year there and coming back and thinking about it for several years, I still don't know what our mission was. Our commanding general would come through once in a while and say, yeah, you're, you're doing a good job, you know, you're, 
either defeating Saddam's party or defeating the insurgency or stopping the Ba'ath party. Every time it was something different. But it wasn't like, this is your mission, this is what you're going to complete. When people talk about victory in Iraq, I don't know what that is. When they say, well, we have to stay until we're victorious, and I always like to ask, well, what, what is your definition of victory? Because I haven't heard one that, that makes any sense from a soldier's perspective because you usually want a goal to work for. When you're fighting every day, you want to say, okay, well, if we can complete this, we can go home. But I always felt, and I think most of the other guys I was with, I always felt like we're just doing our time. Like we went there for a year, we did our time, then we get to go home. No matter what we did, no matter what we accomplished, it wouldn't make a difference in when we got to go home. I also like to talk about the, the job description of a soldier in the United States Army. When you enlist, you take an oath, support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. I always kind of try to carry a copy of it around with me just so I have it um, and read it occasionally. And the oath isn't all bad. I mean, there's a lot of, I've found there's a lot of good stuff in here, and I wish they would use it once in a while. When we're, a soldier goes over and participates in the invasion and occupation of another country, we're not in any way supporting and defending. It's invading and occupying, and that's not what we took an oath to do. After doing this walk and hanging out with peace groups more, I've at one point during the walk, I finally come to the realization that, yes, I'm, I'm a hippie and I can live with that. But hanging out with these people and what they do, um, you know, fighting for freedom of speech and trying to bring peace to the world, they do more to make this country a better place and defend our rights than the entire United States military is doing right now. I don't feel like I really changed sides ever. When I signed up, I thought, well, I can try to make the world a better place, you know, in my little way. And I never really switched sides. I didn't really ever say, well, changed my mind. I always kind of wanted to do something good, and I think I just kind of found the right place to do it. This, another question that's often asked is, well, what if we just pull out of Iraq? I mean, I can't say that I'm at all an expert on Iraq. I usually come and just tell my story and try to talk about it and discuss it, but I've learned a few things about the situation and people saying, well, we, if we just pull out, they're going to fall into chaos. And, okay, that probably would happen. No, I don't think anybody's advocating for us to just up and leave and just be like, screw you guys. There's truth and reconciliation committees through the U.N., there's so many other ways to resolve this, and the militias that were arming both sides. It seems like this country has a horrible history of arming a bunch of people, and then they come and you know bite us in the ass a couple years later. That's exactly what we're doing all over again. And if we do pull out, we have to do it responsibly. I mean, I just think about what if China decides to call in all its debts and builds bases in the United States and runs convoys. I think the people of this country would react very similarly to the way the, the Iraqi people have. Self-determination is freedom, and that's kind of what we need to realize, that we can't force, you can't force freedom on people. That's, that's not freedom, and the, the term freedom is used so frequently, and it's so overused. I don't think anybody really has a concept of what it actually means anymore. Let's talk about the Iraq vets against war a little bit. A group I found while I was still in, a couple months after I got back from Iraq, I was like, there's got to be some more people against this. So I met up with a few people and have been gradually doing more and more with them. But I attended the Winter Soldier Inn 
uh, Washington, D.C. this past March, which was pretty amazing. And there were other vets that that talked about a lot of their things. And sitting in that audience, hearing these testimonies of just these horrible things, and it was, I sat there and listened, and I couldn't help but say, well, that happened every day. That was no big deal. And I think so many guys look at the stuff that happened, it became such a common occurrence that you don't really think about it as being bad. It's so ingrained in your brain, and it's you're, you're trained into it. So it takes a lot to step back and take a look from the outside. And we get groups like Military Family Speak Out. There were some people testifying there from the family's perspective. And it's really great. It really gave me a lot of confidence coming up and, and speaking about it, because I know I'm not the only one. There are a lot of vets out there that are having a very hard time with this. And I think most, most guys don't understand what it's all about. And if we actually look into the history of it all, it's, uh, I think there are better ways to solve our problems. Another question, is Iraq better off? I think Saddam wasn't a very nice man. And I don't know exactly how many people he killed, but it was estimated around 300,000. And the lower estimates of us, the people we've killed, is 100,000, but anywhere up to a million. Five million refugees, that's one-fifth of the population of Iraq. So you think if one-fifth of the United States, you know, if we were invaded, that's, I mean, that's five million people. Five million Iraqis are displaced from their homes. If there are five million people displaced and you're consider, you think it's a better place, I'm sorry, people just want to go home. There's really no way that's going to happen. And the surge seems seems to be working. That's what they'll tell you. Violence levels may be down, but... Depends what news you're watching. There's still bombings every day. American soldiers are still dying. Towns and parts of cities that were once very open and free are now segregated and have giant barricades running through them. If you think it's better and you think the Iraqis are free, you need to look at the situation on the ground, not just what you're hearing. I think I'm going to turn it over again to Josh because he's going to introduce our Speaker of Palestine, which I need to learn a little bit more about. Thank you for coming. That was Paul Melling of the Wheels of Justice campaign. Their website is justicewheels.org. Paul is also a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War. There's one more speaker representing the Wheels of Justice, but you'll have to come back next week to hear from Henry Knorr about his witness in Palestine, Israel. Plus, there will be more music and presentations from the Speak for Peace tour of the American Friends Service Committee, including an Iraqi-born political commentator, Raya Girard, and another veteran of the war in Iraq, Eugene Cherry. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, Oh
of our need. 